This program is made possible entirely by listeners just like you. For details on becoming a member or making a one-time donation, please visit bestoftheleft.com. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Colbert Report, The Young Turks, The Progressive, The Tom Hartman Program, The Onion Radio News, Radio Ecoshock, Media Matters, Sam Cedar, and The Daily Show with a bonus video clip for our iPhone app users from The Colbert Report. It's a tough job market out there. That's why I always try to keep you abreast of the latest job openings. And today, there is a big one. Fox News White House correspondent and David Gregory on horse testosterone, Major Garrett, has announced that he is leaving the network. Now, according to Garrett, he is leaving Fox News for the National Journal because he wants to talk less and think more. So... If you're an unemployed reporter who likes to talk but does not like to think, Fox News is hiring. John McCain goes on Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace, and he's going to talk about class warfare. I found that interesting. Let's go to clip number three and listen. I hope that they'll do a payroll tax cut, but the first thing, the first thing we need to do is extend the, the, uh, the tax cuts that are in existence so people will have that certainty. Well, For the let me ask you about that, because the Democrats are talking, and this is all reportedly at this point, uh, about framing it this way. Let's end the tax cuts for the wealthy and use that $35 billion instead to have targeted tax cuts for small business that does most of the hiring and for lower income employees. Would you support that? Well, let's get in the old class warfare again. Let's get the rich. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, just extend the tax cuts. Then let's talk about the, uh, the payroll tax holiday which for small businesses, which is something we have uh, fought for for a long period of time, and pay for it out of the unused stimulus funds or cut to other spending. Look, look, just extend the tax cuts for the rich first, and then we'll worry about payroll tax for the rest of you or something, okay? Go away, go away, you and your class warfare. Well, I found that interesting because, you know, I believe there is class warfare in the country. It's just that it's the rich doing it on you, the middle class, okay? And I have the numbers to back it up. So let's take a look. First, I've got an interesting chart for you guys. It's what the top 10% of this country has had as a share of the national income. And as you see it over years, let's take a look at that. That's a fascinating graph, right? So there, there it is. The top 10% are, are doing fantastic in the years leading up to the Great Depression. And then we have an enormous crash, and then actually things kind of even out, and we have a, a situation where we build the great American middle class, and the top 10% have a lower share of the national income. And then, of course, in the 1980s, the class warfare of the rich versus the middle class begins again. The rich starts to accumulate a larger and layer, larger share of the national income, and what happens in 2007 and 2008? Another giant crash, right? So now the top 10%, that's pretty broad. How about we look at the top 1%? Let's look at those numbers, see if that clarifies situations. So, uh, for example, in 1915, uh, the top 1%'s share of the national income was 18%. That's pretty high, and 
things were pretty rocky back then, a lot of recessions and uh, uh, ups and downs. And then in 1928, we got to 24%, the highest it's ever been. And what happened in 1929? I believe the Great Depression started, right? Uh, but then afterwards, hey, you know what? From 1953 to 1980, the 1950s, 60s, 70s, the glory years of America, where we build the middle class, the top 1%, their share of the income was only 9 to 11% for that whole time. About 10% of the uh, national income. Makes sense? Everybody's a winner, right? Now, after 1980, we go on a 30-year stretch where Republicans and Democrats who participate with them wind up agreeing with the, the class warfare that the rich have started on the middle class, and they bring that share of the national income for the top 1% all the way back up to 24%. That happened actually in 2007. We have another crash, and we still haven't fixed it, and so now it's still at 24%. Look, that income inequality is not only disastrous for all of us that are in the middle class, but it's also a bad idea for the economy overall, and it ultimately is a bad idea for the rich. Why? Because as even Henry Ford realized, I've got to pay my workers enough so that they can buy my cars. If you don't have a middle class that could buy all the stuff you're creating, eventually they're not going to buy it, and, and, and they're going to run out of money. And with the stagnant wages that we have in the country, and the rich getting higher and higher percentage, that's exactly what's happened. And that's the structural problem we have. Now, for example, from 1980 to 2005, you know what percentage of the increases of our national income went to the top 1%? 80% of the increase. So that trickle-down stuff did not work. It trickled up. Actually, it flowed up. It gushed up. 80% of the increase in national income went to the top 1% in that time. You're talking about class warfare. The middle class, you've been getting... You've had war committed upon you for the last 30 years. You just don't know about it. And people like John McCain go on television and go, oh, tut, tut, tut. If you ever try to even increase taxes this much, bring them back to when they were doing well under the Clinton economy. No, 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 no. Then we're going to say you're doing class warfare. Absurd. Do you know how bad income inequality has become in the United States? Now, here's a list of some countries, and there are many, many countries, some countries that have better income e equality than we do. France, we say, all right, well, you know what? I'm not sure how well their economy is doing. Well, Germany, their economy is doing fantastic. Their manufacturing base, I mean, right now, of course, their economy is suffering along with everybody else because of the world recession, but they have a really strong manufacturing base. Sweden, Denmark, Spain, Canada, Australia. Wait a minute. Guyana? Nicaragua? Venezuela? They all have better in income equality than we do. Look, we used to call some of those Latin American countries banana republics. They're third world because they have a few rich and everybody else is who else is poor. That's a ridiculous way to run it. It, it eventually leads to dictatorships, etc. It's anti-democratic. It, it's not good for the economy. It's not good for anybody. <laughs> banana republics. Now we're lower than them in income equality. We're headed off a cliff and anytime you suggest that, hey, perhaps the rich should also pay their fair share uh, of taxes, John McCain, Republicans, everybody. Oh, no, 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 class warfare, class warfare.
think of us talking points and false choice after false choice and there's no prominent voices on the left five companies own everything you read hear and see misleading the people still calling it freedom of the press disaster of epic proportions they got us all in traitors in our midst screwed over when corporations bought in to congress Representatives of representing mostly lobbyists While the typical oblivious American is fine with all this Given the daily dose of celebrity gossip Government held hostage We kicked the worst out of office But at the core it remains rotten regardless Now how much can you rot the system Before it can be classified as like call a crime This is class warfare Whenever Republicans are at risk of not getting their way for their millionaire constituents, they cry class warfare. So it was that House Minority Whip Eric Cantor just whipped out the old accusation again in the Wall Street Journal, blaming the Democrats and the progressive left for provocative class warfare rhetoric. What Cantor doesn't like is the rhetoric, but he's content with the class warfare because his class keeps winning. Battle after battle, war after war. Just look how much ground the richest of the rich have gained from the Bush tax cuts, which the Republicans are so intent on keeping for this cohort. The top 0.1% of Americans gained more than $2,326 apiece, whereas people making between thirty and 40000 gained only seven grand. Most Americans have been losing ground with real wages and household incomes falling over the last decade. Right now, they're desperate for tax cuts. And those tax cuts would inject a lot of money into the economy, by the way. Whereas the top 0.1% aren't desperate for tax cuts. They're just greedy, not needy. But in our economy and in our political system, it's the richest and the greediest who win the class war, no matter what you call it. So let's presuppose for a moment that you actually enjoy this show. Now, if that's true, please consider supporting it with a $5 monthly membership. I actually quit my job as a climate activist to pursue this show full-time because this is where I felt like my talents could best be put to use and I could have the biggest impact on the world. But I really need your support to keep going. I produce 10 shows a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule posting shows at least every third day. So if all that is worth 5 bucks a month or as little as $55, a year, a little discount for you, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Well, it's official. Money can buy your can buy happiness. You know, in uh, in my book, The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight, there's a chapter called The Secret of Enough, and it's a point that I I've made many many times over the years, and, and a few times on this program that I think bears revisiting, particularly in the light of this new study that I'm going to tell you about in just a moment, and that is that the modern consumer society and the Reagan version, the post Reagan version. The post-1980 version of the American dream is based on a truth and a lie. Now, first of all, the post-Reagan version of the American dream, why do I differentiate that from the American dream? Before Reagan, the American dream was to have enough money to buy a house, 
have a decent retirement, put your kids through school, raise a family, have one person working in the family ideally. If two want to, great, no problem. But be able to basically have a solid, comfortable middle class life. That was the American dream through almost all of the entire history of this country. Reagan recalibrated the American dream and said, no, the American dream is you too can get rich. And everybody's going to try and get rich, and everybody, and therefore we need to put the interests of the rich people first. So let's give tax breaks to rich people, because you never know. You might be the next rich person. And we started elaborating into celebrity status, entrepreneurs and billionaires, and all this kind of stuff. So the American dream changed over the last 30 years. Although I would submit to you that the majority of Americans, really, their dream still is just having a decent middle-class job. So in The Secret of Enough, in that chapter, what I pointed out is that there's a truth and a lie to this. The truth is that if you're outdoors at night naked and hungry in in the woods and cold, you are unhappy. And and if somebody brings you indoors and give you know gives you some clothing and gives you a warm bed to sleep in and a and a bowl of soup to drink and lets you sit by a warm fire and gives you a glass of water or a mug of beer or whatever you're 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 going to go from being unhappy to happy r- real fast. In other words, there is a certain amount of stuff that does influence happiness. The lie part of it, I pointed out back a decade ago when I wrote that book, and I've talked about it in a couple of movies actually since then, is the lie part of it is that, is this story of our society that, well, okay, if this amount of stuff can make you that much more happy, in other words, you know, a bowl of soup, a blanket, and a, and a fire and a warm bed, if that can make you so much happy, so much more happy, ten times as much stuff will make you ten times as happy. A hundred times as stuff will make you a hundred times, a thousand times as stuff, a thousand times as happy, a million times as much stuff, a million times as happy. And Bill Gates lives in a state of perpetual bliss. The, that the rich people of the world are like right on the edge of a perpetual orgasm. That's, it's, it's that good. That's the lie. And in fact, it's amazing when you look at the studies that have been done on lottery winners, people who went from being middle class or even poor to being suddenly rich, how the vast majority of them, I mean like well over 90% of them, crash and burn emotionally and in their whole entire lives. So now this study, this was a huge study. I mean, this was, this was done on um, over 20,000 people, as I recall. And it was done by a Nobel Prize winning psychologist, a fellow by the name of uh, Dr. Kahneman. And it's reported by the AP, Ralph Schmidt, today. And basically what he's saying, what the study is pointing out, is that if somebody that up to $75,000 a year in the United States, now this will vary from country to country, because in different countries you can have that, quote, middle class lifestyle. In other words, enough to buy a house and a car and put your kids through school and save a little bit for retirement and uh, take a vacation every year and and have, have health insurance. So seventy five grand a year seems to be that threshold. And tragically, the average American income right now is around $40,000, $44,000 a year. I think 44000 is our mean income. 40000 is our average income. Or maybe it's the other way around. But in any case, it's in that neighborhood. But what they found is that up to $75,000 a year, as people make more and more up to seventy five grand a year, they actually experience less anxiety and have greater, quote, happiness. 
better relationships with their family, their kids, people around them, uh, their, their state of mind is improved. However, when people make more than $75,000 a year, there are measurable differences in their feeling of accomplishment, but not in their happiness, which is really fascinating. I mean, this is, you know, the, the, in fact, you know, this is a quote from the study. He said, giving people more income beyond $75,000 is not going to do much for their daily mood. And they, they, they even made the example of moving from a $100,000 a year job to a $200,000 a year job. They said, uh, you know, it's, it's an improved measure of success, but it doesn't necessarily make anybody happier. And in fact, the studies indicate that it doesn't. The, study, the research, by the way, was uh, paid for by the Gallup Organization and the National Institute of Aging on aging. So, in America, here's the carry-home message for this. We have become, along with Singapore, we have become the one, one of the three most unequal societies in the world. Singapore, the U.S., and the U.K. Because well, Singapore, because it's a dictatorship and it's a very efficient, very efficiently run one. So there's a small group of very, very rich people and a large group of very poor working poor people. And there's not much of a middle class in Singapore. And, and to the extent that it is, it's a professional middle class. But in the U.S. and the U.K., we didn't have this kind of inequality before Reagan, before 1980. And, and I shouldn't just pin it all on Reagan, because Bill Clinton played a big role in this as well doing away welfare as we know it and buying into this idea of free trade where half of all of our trade is actually companies simply outsourcing work to themselves in other countries. Hewlett-Packard buying their printers from Hewlett-Packard China and shipping them in the United States and keeping the profits overseas to whatever extent they can even. So so anyhow, the, the, the point is that we have become a very unequal society because for the last 30 years, we've been pursuing, and so has England, we've been pursuing this notion that getting rich is what it's all about. That's where happiness comes from. When in fact, having a middle-class lifestyle is what it's all about, and that's where happiness comes from. And I would submit to you that Americans were a hell of a lot happier 30 years ago before Reagan when, when more than half of American workers had the equivalent of a good union job. When Reagan came into office, I mean, back even in 47, 35% of American works, workers were unionized. And typically, for every unionized worker, there's an identical non-unionized worker in the workforce because the union jobs create basically the floor for employment, for pay and for benefits. And so half of America's workforce was doing just fine in 1980 when Ronald Reagan came into office was able to like my dad did was able to raise he, he raised four boys he put some of us through school he 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 I mean, he, he he paid off his house before he died he he had a pension he had health insurance until the day he died until, until the day my mom died she was still getting my dad's pension and health insurance and that's cuz he had a good union job and a union job in a union shop and a tool and die Lansing die, Lansing tool and die sinking and that's just like, that's not America anymore. Because our insane trade policies have moved those 
manufacturing jobs overseas. So what I'm suggesting is that we need to stop saying that the salvation of America is to empower the corporations and the rich and start realizing that if we want to have a happier society, a more functioning society, a society with less child abuse, less violence towards women, less violence towards each other, less social dysfunction, less disease, less mental illness, if we want to reduce all of those negative social indices, then let's try to get the average wage in the United States up to $75,000 a year and do it by unionizing as much of America as possible. It's The Onion Radio News. An unemployed businessman has time for a headache now. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Philip Garden of Dearborn, Michigan, doesn't need the power of extra strength Excedrin today because the laid-off 38-year-old marketing executive now has all the time in the world for a crushing headache. Garden, who used the popular headache remedy for years to accommodate a schedule that just didn't allow for white-hot cranial pain, has this to say. Back when I was gainfully employed, I wouldn't have been able to fit all this throbbing migraine tension in. And now that I'm out of work, I can easily suffer this miserable headache while I lie here on the couch watching cards sharks and one life to live. Garden's headache is expected to worsen over the next several weeks, filling nearly all of his free time and forcing him to cancel numerous job interviews before he returns to extra strength etc. and a less flexible schedule. Royal Redland for the Onion Radio News online at Hey, David Pakman here, host of the nationally syndicated Midweek Politics with David Pakman. If you're anything like me, you're a regular listener to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with Jay Tomlinson. If you like that, I want to invite you to check out my show, Midweek Politics with David Pakman. Not only will you hear the best of the left, but you'll hear some of the worst of the right, including some of the craziest bigots and racists you've ever seen. But don't worry, I don't agree with them. Check out midweekpolitics.com, check out my show, continue listening to Best of the Left podcast, and even consider becoming a member of the Midweek Politics membership program. In eighteen eighty five, Carl Benz constructed the first automobile. It had three wheels, like an invalid car, and ran on alcohol, like many drivers. Since then about 17 million people have been killed by them, in an undeclared war. And the whole of the rest of the world is in danger of being run over, due to squabbles about their oil. If an alien was to hover a few hundred yards above the planet, it could be forgiven for thinking that cars were the dominant life form and that human beings were a kind of ambulatory fuel cell. 
injected when the car wished to move off, and ejected when they were spent. Not one huckstering copywriter ever sees fit to mention that the automobile, even that moving pantheon, the rolls, doubles your heartbeat on entry and transforms your psychogalvanic skin response to set the needles shivering on any lie detector. From the moment you settle comfortably behind the wheel, your pelvis fondled by replica flesh panting with static. It increases stress readings, slowly marinates the body of even the most experienced driver with adrenotoxins. Noisily generates a wide range of cardiovascular pressures, as well as doubling up as a dinky organ accumulator stimulating trash sexuality. Tides of blood and water in the body are magically mixed, as if there was a permanent full moon. Oh we had such an awful journey. I feel completely drained. What did you want to talk to us about? My concentration's utterly shot. Why did we come? That was a quote from the long poem Otto Geddon, written by British writer Heathcote Williams and originally published in 1987 in the fall edition of the Whole Earth Review. It was released as a lavishly illustrated book in 1991 and even made it into a radio drama by BBC Two. The presenter was Jeremy Irons, who it turns out loved cars. The background music was Gary Newman's 1979 song, Cars. This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith. Welcome to my hate affair with machines. Yes, I have lived without them. Millions of people still do, but like the Bushmen or the Neanderthals, they are pushed backward toward the distant fringes of our world, at least until the center collapses. The car is a beast that may well one day consume the earth and all who dwell on it a terrifying thought. But what would the world be like with no internal combustion engine? In The Story of Here Begins, I asked myself the question, setting aside the issues of the wide world for a second, who and what are right here under my nose? Well, from the top of Water Tower Hill, one answer is abundantly clear. My little ten-mile world is filled with cars, Lots and lots and lots. A god-king hell of a lot of cars. A large slice of the blame for centuries worth of wrong turns can be laid at the feet of this one invention. More than any other single toy in the playroom of technology, it has enabled us to go completely crazy and to get there in air-conditioned comfort and style. That is a quote from Alan Wartz in his blog, The Story of Here. And it captures my own feelings so well when I venture outside to see the six-lane roadways that intersect near my home, those rivers of asphalt and steel. I risk my life if I try and run across them, and their exhaust penetrates my very walls and windows 24 hours a day. How did we get into this toxic way of life? I had to go and see a presentation by Catherine Lutz and Anne Lutz Fernandez for their new book, Carjacked, The Culture of the Automobile and Its Effect on Our Lives. My attempt to record that talk did fail, unfortunately, but we're lucky to have Anne on the phone with us now. Anne Lutz Fernandez, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, how is it that we love cars so much and hate the life that they impose on us? 
Well, that's a, a nice way to express it because when we started our research about five years ago, uh, we tended to, to think the, just the former, that, that uh, North Americans loved their vehicles and that it was truly a, a romance. Uh, but we discovered that the romance, which has been marketed to us over the decades and which we have grown up learning to love in part, um, you know, through our family experiences and pleasant experiences growing up, family vacations and these positive things that we remember uh, around the car, the day-to-day reality for most people is a little bit more fraught with contradiction. And uh, we're finding that we're spending more time, money, good health on our cars than we wish to. And at the end of your presentation in Vancouver, I asked why you didn't go straight for the global warming impacts of car emissions. It seemed to me you said car culture is unsustainable and uneconomical, even without the whole emissions problem. Did I understand that correctly? Absolutely. When we started the research for our book, we were feeling fairly hopeful that um, the message about uh, the environmental impact of fossil fuels had been reaching a wider audience and that there were a a good number of of folks who were responding to that by altering the way they moved around in the world. But we also found that no matter how much some uh, Americans learned about Uh, the environmental impact of the automobile. Many people felt really quite trapped by the built environment, uh, felt that they had little choice, and we realized that there were some other arguments that we could make that might be more compelling on the household and immediate level about uh, how much um, cars are uh, sucking uh, funds out of our household budgets, out of our national budgets, how, uh, again, how much time we're spending on a daily and weekly and annual basis uh, in our cars as drivers or passengers, that there were a number of other avenues that we could explore to persuade people to really take a harder look at the cars that were parked in their driveways. I know you talked about our personal attachment to cars. We we may have uh, done all sorts of things in them, and, and they really have been part of our life. We sort of go glassy-eyed thinking over our favorite car, but I think it's also a media problem. Our, our newspapers and the nightly news on TV, they absolutely depend on those car ads to survive. Maybe it's not surprising we know so little about the total car deaths and all those lives ruined by injuries. What did you find out about the connections between media and the car culture? Well, absolutely, the automotive industry as a whole, and that includes the automakers, the suppliers of tires and other ancillary products, uh, car insurance, as well as the the dealerships on the local and and regional levels, the spending uh, that goes toward the media to advertise uh, automotive products is just astounding. In the U.S., the auto industry has been, year in and year out, the number one advertiser. Local newspapers in particular tend to depend on the advertising they get for cars that are being sold either by individuals or by dealers. And so the messages that we're getting from the media tend to be the positive ones that reinforce the advertising messages that we're getting. We we may get some advice on how to be a sharper buyer in the dealership, but we're not going to get many stories that really look at the realities of what it means to own two-plus cars, what what that does to the household budget. We're not going to get a lot of stories about the year-in and year-out car fatalities and 
life-changing injuries that uh, Americans uh, are experiencing. We we tend to get the glossy images repeated, perhaps with a with a, a sense of the insider's view on how to get a good deal. But other than that, we're not getting much hard-hitting news about car safety, about how cars perpetuate inequity, uh, about some of the the, the downsides of a car-dependent culture. Well, right. I've been injured on the roads, and practically everybody I know has had an accident, and and they can point to some injury they've had, and and then there are all those people whose lives are just absolutely ruined. One second they're they're standing by the curb or they're driving down the road, and everything's upside down with huge uh, social costs, huge medical costs. Uh, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, we we spoke to a wide variety of people who had experienced their own. You mentioned, you know, so many of us have had our own experiences being injured in a crash or have a close friend or family member that we've lost to a highway or, or road crash. We had also spoken to a number of people who had killed or injured others in their vehicles, and those were some truly uh, poignant stories of people who were continued to be haunted by the deaths that they felt responsible for. Folks who, you know, decades after a crash were still being cared for by their parents, for example, their aging parents taking care of them because they're confined to a wheelchair and, and still suffering um, the effects of a, of a very severe crash. And we spoke to a number of those first responders, uh, the police and the EMTs who experience so often the repeated occurrence of, of a crash and, and see the lives in that moment that we so rarely see in the news because they happen one at a time. You know, if there's a major plane crash or a a train uh, crash uh, of any sort, we hear about it because multiple people were injured at the same time. But each day, those hundreds of people who are killed in crashes and the, the thousands who are injured largely go without our notice unless we have a personal connection to them. And Anne, right outside my door, the same government that promises climate action is adding more lanes to the freeway. It's part of a binge of road construction that was shovel-ready when the government wanted to spend hundreds of billions in stimulus money. Did you look into the real costs of all these streets and highways? Yes, absolutely. The the externalized costs of our automobiles, you know, we, we, we looked at, at both the day-to-day household costs that people see, the, the finance costs, the gasoline costs, the insurance costs. And then there's that huge part of our tax bill that we don't fully understand where it's going. And some of that goes into road construction or maintenance. A lot of it goes to, uh, you know, to our last um, point about the crashes, a tremendous amount of funds go into, obviously, traffic control and management and, and crash rescue and cleanup. A tremendous amount of our tax dollars still go to subsidies for the oil industry. You know, with the BP spill, there's been more attention paid to that, but the oil and auto industry for decades have been benefiting from, from tax dollars directly that few people are aware of the, to- the total amount that's being siphoned from our tax coffers that the rest of us make up. You know, politically, it's been historically a positive thing for, for politicians to spend money on roads. If you or I own a car and we've put all of our uh, hard-earned dollars into purchasing and maintaining that, that car, then we want roads to drive on. And in, in the United States, 9 out of 10 Americans do own cars and want good roads to drive them on. And so it's been a very politically easy way to spend money. We're fortunate, I, I think, to see some trending towards uh, more public support for transit and, and shifting some of the dollars that have been spent on highways and roads 
towards transit and, and alternative, so-called alternative transportation. But it's been a long time coming, and it's a little bit slow uh, getting there even now. Today, Media Matters looks at how right-wing media figures have opposed every major package proposed to stimulate the economy since President Obama took office. Most recently, they take an issue with Obama's infrastructure plan. It's a stimulus plan. They don't want to call it a stimulus plan, but it is a stimulus plan for the unions. Previously, they opposed extending unemployment insurance. Giving somebody unemployment, I understand it's an important, vital safety net. How is it a job? Well, there goes the logic that... And an aid package to schools and states. They are now trapping your state into making sure that they cannot tighten their belt either. And increase funding for food stamps. And then there are billions for increased food stamps, child care, and other entitlements have nothing to do with stimulating the economy. Of course, all of these have been shown to stimulate the economy and have drawn support from a number of economic analysts. about Social Security. It's essential. Social Security is very important to me. I think it's a necessity. I wish I could have some when I get older. The fear over it going, being insolvent is bullshit. What you want to know about Social Security? Did you know the Republicans want to raise the retirement age and cut benefits? Didn't they raise it once already? Yeah, we'll raise it again. Raise it until it's unreachable, right? Doesn't mean you can work at 75 years old just because they say you can. You should be able to retire at, a, at an age where you still have some life left in here. I'd rather not have Social Security cut. Uh, because it's important for my retirement. Cut benefits. I mean, how much are they going to cut? Instead of cutting it, they should be expanding Social Security. It's the exact opposite. Now you dealing with elderly people now. Now you want to hurt the elderly people? Well, I definitely don't think benefits should be cut. People work so hard. It's just not fair. A lot of politicians don't understand how much people count on that as part of their retirement plan. Did you also know that at the same time, Republicans want to extend the Bush tax cuts for millionaires? That sounds like a Republican. Ridiculous. They value wealth over everything, and they just want the rich to get richer. It's disgusting. It's a crime. I'm just against the idea that we should have tax tax cuts for the rich. I don't think they need to extend the tax cuts at this point. Bush tax cuts were t a terrible, terrible idea. I think it's a bad idea. I think it's a horrible idea. It's the worst idea you could ever have. Come on. I think it sucks. Giving tax cuts to millionaires. It's ludicrous. It's crazy. It's insane. Despicable. Unfair. Not fair. It's obscene. Did I say despicable? If you're making more money, you should pay more taxes. You hoping that, being that I'm, I'm saving you this in taxes, you're going to take that money and you're going to put it into the economy. No one's putting anything in the economy. It's not being trickled down, it's going in their pocket. I mean, things have to be more equitable. You have to let people live. Our tax cuts for the wealthy uh, and, and, and cutting Social Security is going gonna, is gonna to help the rank and file is simply beyond me. Take it out of the working man, sure. To cut Social Security, at the same time give massive tax cuts to the wealthy while complaining about a deficit is immoral, disgusting, and stupid.
Uh, let's begin tonight in Washington, D.C. It's our nation's capital. For the last 18 or so months, uh, Barack Obama has been the president. Democrats have controlled uh, both houses of Congress. Purely by coincidence, that is the exact same amount of time that Republicans have expressed a newfound concern for our nation's financial stability. Spending is out of control. We're going to have a deficit this year, $1.8 trillion. People are aghast. They're scared to death about the future for their kids and their grandkids. Genuinely worried about their children and grandchildren being crushed. The deficit wants to skull your mother! <laughs> it wants to eat your children! After it shows your wife a level of physical passion, you've never been able to provide. It's a powerful deficit is what I'm saying. Well, there is good news for concerned Republicans. Your prayers to the God of uncrushed children have been answered. You see, George Bush's massive tax cuts are the single largest chunk of our structural budget deficit. Were the tax cuts to expire, the budget deficit would instantly shrink by about 30% or more than $300 billion. That 3D animatronic version of Fareed Zakaria is right. <laughs> Handsome. Letting the Bush tax cuts expire shrinks the deficit by 30%, some say 25%. As luck would have it, the Bush tax cuts are scheduled to expire at the end of 2010, the very year Republicans have expressed concern about deficit reduction. I love it when a plan comes together. Let's extend the tax cuts. Let's extend them. Let's just go with Ken Conrad's plan and extend these tax cuts for two years. I am not for raising taxes on the American people. We cannot allow for even talk of raising taxes right now. Oh my God, do they not realize that the, the tax cuts strengthen the deficit monster that's going to eat our babies? <laughs> How exactly can you be for deficit reduction and extending tax cuts? How, how do those two diametrically opposed thoughts exist in the same party platform? They know that we have to extend the Bush tax cuts. They have to repeal the budget-busting bills like Obamacare. What? Oh my God, she's got them existing in the same sentence. <laughs> and I say to you, Sarah Palin, that a sentence divided against itself cannot stand, <laughs> comma, period. Exclamation point. Uh, why did I... Right. Why Lincoln's words are in Kennedy's mouth. <laughs> Not really sure why that happened. I guess it's better than doing it as Jackie Mason. We can't let the sentence divide the How can you argue that? It just, it's... It just... <laughs> my thinking beard is gone! <laughs> well, uh, the, uh... They must have an explanation for this. You're saying extend the tax cuts that aren't paid for uh, and cut the deficit. I think it's apples and oranges. Yes, yes. In the sense that for no discernible reason, you love apples and think oranges are ruining the country. <laughs> T take, take another crack at this. Why are they different? They talk about tax cuts the same way they talk about spending increases as though the government owned all of the money. They say, are they paid for? Well, I think, I think deciding on a government spending increase is very different on whether or not we allow the American people to keep more of their hard-earned tax dollars. So what you're saying is money the government gets is very different from money the government spends. Okay.
<laughs> but you're for deficit reduction. And I believe the deficit's opinion on that issue can best be summed up with this. Business bad? F you, pay me. Oh, you had a fire? F you, pay me. Place got hit by lightning, huh? F you, pay me. Deficit doesn't care where it comes from. Ultimately, it boils down to, in Mike Pence's opinion, apples and oranges. And speaking of oranges, what does House Minority Leader and retired Syracuse mascot, John Boehner, think is the answer? The only way we're going to get our economy going again and solve our budget problems uh, is to get the economy moving. <laughs> the only way to get our economy going is to get it moving? <laughs> that is either the most profound or most retarded statement I've ever heard. You know what, actually, no, wait, wait. In fact, it's the most profoundly retarded statement I've ever heard. <laughs> that is the kind of statement, that is the kind of statement that you think will be followed by the phrase, in bed. It, it, it makes, by the way, didn't that cat used to be orange? What, now he's like a different brownish, either he's getting ready to play an Indian in a 1950s Western, or John Boehner, and I believe this may be the case, is not human, but actually made entirely of cured meats. I'm saying, you're welcome. He is, he is, perhaps jerky. <laughs> so lack of specificity is just one part of the Republican economic plan, but to find the creamy caramel nougaty center, you must find the philosophical underpinnings of the Republican economic plan. For that, we go to one of the brains of the operation. The job-killing nature of the Obama-Reed-Pelosi team is in fact the first big challenge we're faced with as a country. Part of it's because they don't know, and part of it's because, frankly, they're socialists, they don't care. Wow, so the plan to return the tax rate for any household making over $250,000 a year in 2010 to what they were under President Clinton and still lower than almost every year under Ronald Reagan is an active socialist plot to ruin the economy. And we all know there's only one way to counter a socialist plot. You want to create jobs as rapidly as China? The Chinese pay zero capital gains tax. If we had zero capital gains tax in the United States, we'd be building factories, founding companies, creating jobs. We'd be dramatically better off. So that's the Republican plan. To fight socialism, we must become communists. You can support this podcast at no additional cost yourself when you shop at Amazon through a special widget posted at bestoftheleft.com. You can use the widget to search for what you're looking for or simply click through and shop the site normally. Better yet, click through on the widget once and bookmark that page to use every single time you shop. By doing this, Amazon will donate around 7 or 8% of the cost of your order to support this show without adding a dime to your bill. It's very little effort on your part, but can make a huge difference to support the show. Check out the widget on the right side of bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support.
Barack Obama needs to clean house, starting with his kitchen cabinet of economic advisors, but instead he's serving up leftovers on some of the same old dirty dishes. Take Austin Goolsby, Obama's choice to be his new head of the Council of Economic Advisors. It was Goolsby during the presidential campaign who said Obama's talk of renegotiating NAFTA was just political posturing. And it was Goolsby who urged Obama not to bail out the auto companies. Fortunately, Obama didn't listen to him then. Why should he listen to him now? Or take Tim Geithner. Geithner, who once notoriously said, we have a financial system that's run by private shareholders, managed by private institutions, and we'd like to do our best to preserve that system. And Geithner's done his level best to preserve the interests of private shareholders, but not those of the public. Just look at the bank bailouts. According to media reports, Obama may even keep Larry Summers on. Obama's economic policies haven't been nearly ambitious enough in the face of the crisis he inherited, so he should discard the people who designed them instead of reusing them over and over again. We've been talking about these Bush tax cuts because they're coming up now for renewal. Should we renew them or not? Now, if we do, and now they're tax cuts for all the different brackets. Overall, it would cost our budget over the next 10 years $3.1 trillion. Me, personally, I don't think they should be renewed. Okay, I don't think they should be renewed for the richest people in the country, but I don't think they should be renewed for any of us, to be honest, because we have a terrible deficit situation, and I'm an actual deficit hawk, unlike the pretend ones you see on television. Okay. Now, when they asked liberals, moderates, and Republicans, though, uh, about that, they found some very surprising answers. First, they asked, hey, do you think the tax cuts for the top brackets, the top 2% uh, of the, the wealthiest people in the country, should they be renewed? So here's what they found out. It is a CNN uh, study, by the way. 9% of liberals said that they favor tax cuts for the rich, which is not surprising. Liberals are generally against tax cuts for the rich. But 9%, maybe the ones that are limousine liberals, were like, eh, not such a good idea. Who knows, right? Now, 26% of moderates said that they favor it, so overwhelmingly moderates are against tax cuts for the rich. But look at that number. 50% of Republicans said, yeah, let's give tax cuts for the rich. But 50% said, hell no, let's not give tax cuts for the rich. Let's not renew those. That is much larger than people would suspect. So you got fully half of the Republican Party not the politicians, the actual voters, say, no, let's not renew the tax cuts for the rich. Here's an interesting twist, though. When they asked, hey, how about tax cuts for everyone else? Should that be renewed? Let's look at that. Liberals said 69% of them said, yes, tax cuts for everyone else should be renewed. 53% of moderates said they should be renewed. But look at this. 36% of Republicans said uh, that they should be renewed, meaning a great majority think they should not be renewed. So, you, look, that leads to a couple of different uh, conclusions. First of all, the, you can argue that the Republicans are being, the, the voters themselves are being principled, saying, hey, you know what? It's going to screw up the deficit either way, and so I don't want those tax cuts to ruin our fiscal problems and, and our budget, right? 
I think that's a very legitimate interpretation, and I give them credit for that. Now, of course, you can look at it and say, wait a minute, more Republicans favor tax cuts for the rich than they do for everyone else. Okay, that's fair too, but overall, what turns conventional wisdom on its head is that a majority of Republicans don't want tax cuts for anybody. A majority say no tax cuts for the 98% of us, and half, exactly half, say no tax cuts for the rich. So the, all this idea of, oh, Republicans want tax cuts, Republicans want tax cuts. But if you actually ask the Republican voters, they say, no, we don't. We, want, we would rather balance the budget. Look at this, Republicans support of tax cuts. For the rich, it's only 50%. For everyone else, it's 36%. They don't want the tax cuts. How come nobody ever points that out? That's a very interesting finding. Look, the reason they don't want it, and again, going back and giving him credit here, and if that's the way they voted, which unfortunately they don't, they vote for Republican politicians who uh, stop at nothing to make sure that the rich get their tax cuts. But if the Republican voters got their way, I would be on their side. Look, I, I agree with them. That's the final result. I mean, I don't think we should get tax cuts for any of these people. Look, we're in a state where our budget is a disaster. To give away $3.1 trillion, look, I think those Republican voters are saying, we're not convinced that it's going to help the rich stimulate the economy, but we're not convinced that it's going to help stimulate the economy for the rest of us either. And generally speaking, I agree with them. And if you look at the numbers, and we've showed you these numbers in the past, as to what stimulates the economy the most, it's things like unemployment benefits and food stamps, because they get spent right away. So they have a larger multiplier on the economy. They positively affect the rest of the economy. If you give tax cuts, whether it's for the rich, which is, has the worst multiplier, or for the rest of us, it still has a bad multiplier because a lot of people save their tax cuts so it doesn't stimulate the economy. So the bottom line on this is twofold. One, Republican voters are not in favor of tax cuts, so stop saying that. And number two, I agree with the Republican voters. Now, number three, <laughs> the Republican politicians do not represent the Republican voters. Do I agree with the Republican politicians? Hell no! Because they're on the exact opposite, saying, we have to have the tax cuts no matter what! In fact, perfect example is Mitch McConnell on Meet the Press. David Gregory keeps asking him and asking him, putting him in a corner, right? And look at how he tries to weasel his way out, but he can't. Let's go to clip number two. But my question is, how do you debate. pay for an extension of tax cuts? Because if you're concerned, as Republicans say they are, about cutting spending and the deficit, you have to acknowledge that tax cuts are not paid for. Well, what, 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 what are you talking about? Pay for This is existing tax policy. It's been in place for 10 years. What they're talking about is raising taxes, impacting 50% of small business income in the middle of what most Americans think is a recession. That is not a responsible thing to do, it's in my still, But it's still borrowed money. The CBO senator this week made it very clear that the long-term picture for the economy, for the deficit, is very dark if you extend the Bush-era tax cuts without somehow paying for them. Look, what we're talking about here is, is tax increases in the middle of a recession. We're going to have the third year in a row under this administration of an annual deficit of more than a trillion dollars. 
That is not because we are taxing too little, David. It's because we're spending too much. But Senator, we with respect, you're being unresponsive to a question, which is, are tax cuts well, paid for going forward, or is it borrowed money at a time when you and other Republican leaders say we must get serious <laughs> about the deficit? It's a straightforward question. Uh, yeah, I know, and I, I gave you a straightforward answer. What we're talking about here is raising taxes in the middle of what most Americans think is a recession. That isn't going to produce more revenue. We've, we've got a serious job loss problem in this country. For a final time, I'll go back to my question, which is the extension of the tax cuts would cost uh, $3.2 trillion. That's borrowed money. That adds to the deficit. Do you have a plan to pay for that extension? You're talking about current tax policy. Why did it all of a sudden be, uh, become something that we, quote, uh, uh, paid for? Oh, that's great, man. Did you catch that last part? He's like, all of a sudden, why do we have to pay for tax cuts for the rich? The current policy under Bush and then uh, the last couple of years under Obama is we don't pay for tax cuts for the rich. We just add that to the deficit and the, uh, and the debt. And eventually we turn around and go, oh, sorry, we spent all the money, and so we can't pay your Social Security. It's like, all of a sudden, why are you demanding we pay for it? By the way, you want to know the numbers, uh, what David Gregory alluded to there? And by the way, very good job of asking follow-up questions by David Gregory. That was, you know, challenging the government. That was nicely done, okay? Now, uh, by 2014, um, right now our deficit is $1.342 uh, trillion, right? If we do not extend the Bush tax cuts for anybody, the budget uh, deficit by 2014, in four years, will go down to $438 billion. Now that sounds like a lot, but it's a trillion, almost a trillion dollars less than where we are now, and it would be a pretty manageable 2.5% of the GDP. Okay. Hey, I can live with that. I'd rather have it be balanced, but 2.5% of the GDP is workable, okay? So that's why I'm not in favor of extending the tax cuts for anybody, okay? Now, if you do what the Republicans want, and you extend the tax cuts for everybody, including the richest Americans, and you get rid of the estate taxes they want, the estate tax over the next 10 years, if we got rid of it, would also cost the budget $262 billion. You put that together, you know what it would do? It would about double our deficit. It would double our deficit. And these guys pretend that they want balanced budgets. Do you understand what's going on here? They are unremittent liars. Gregory did a very good job there of putting them in a corner and saying, what is it? Are you gonna, it's gonna raise a deficit, is it? It's gonna raise a deficit, isn't it? You're not paying for it, are you? He says, come on, now you're being silly. Why would I pay for tax cuts for the rich? I'm a Republican. Look, they're the richy rich party. That's what they are. And just everybody understand it. And if you're in the top 2%, you might wanna vote for a Republican. If you're not, you gotta get your head examined. Okay, I'm not done yet. Now you think those are the Republicans that are terrible. No, I'm not letting the Democrats off the hook. So in the middle of this debate, which we have thoroughly won, what do you think is going to happen? Of course, Democrats bailing out. Running for office, uh, Robin Carnahan in Missouri, Jack Conway in Kentucky, all Democratic candidates, Brad Ellsworth in Indiana, and Charlie Mellencon in Louisiana, all Senate candidates, all Democrats, all saying we should extend tax cuts for the very rich.
and agreeing with the Republicans. But even the Republican voters don't think that. Why are you saying that? Only two possible reasons. One, you're getting the same money from those same rich folks. And so under the guise of, oh, I live in a red state, oh, I have to be more conservative, you just take their cash and then you sell out your voters. Or you're so profoundly stupid that you believe the Republican talking points that doesn't even represent the Republican voters, let alone all the voters. It doesn't even come close to it. And you're so pathetic that you bowed your head without even knowing what the facts are. So I asked those Democrats, which one is it? Because I'm not sure. So you tell me, which one is it? Thanks for listening, everyone. Normally at this time, I would play a few voicemails from you, the listeners. If you'd like to leave a voicemail yourself to be played, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. I'm going to forego that during this episode because uh, we had a, a full episode full of clips, and, but I still promised to play the Colbert Report announcement of the October 30th rally that's happening in Washington, D.C. So I'm just going to play that as a little bonus clip here at the end. Here you go. Folks, who am I kidding? You, um, you didn't come here tonight. You didn't tune in to hear me call Stephen Hawking an a-hole. Although there is little doubt. No, you tuned in to hear me make a big announcement. This announcement's gonna be in Censoround. <laughs> now, if you caught my warm-up act, you'll know that Jon Stewart made his big announcement. Personally, I thought he was gonna finally admit to killing and eating Mo Rocca back in 2003. <laughs> he made all of us eat his Rocca tacos. <laughs> so delicious. But no, no, ladies and gentlemen, it turns out John's announcement was something far more disturbing. Tonight I announce the rally to restore sanity. We will gather on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., a million moderate march. Seems like a pretty reasonable request. See you October 30th on the National Mall, spreading the timeless message. Take it down a notch. America. Well, I am sorry, Jon Stewart. I will not take it down a notch. I will notch it up a scotch. <laughs> Jon Stewart is holding a rally in Washington, D.C. to promote reasonableness? Need I point out that reason is just one letter away from treason? <laughs> and if we had taken it down a notch when the British passed their tea tax, today we'd all be speaking English. So shame on you, Jon Stewart. America cannot afford a rally to restore sanity in the middle of a recession. Did you even consider how many panic-related jobs that might cost those of us in the fear industrial complex? Jim, 
People across the country are afraid, terrified, running scared, afraid of the future, petrified, fearful, afraid, scared, freaked out, scared, silly, frightened. A frightening reality out there of the socialist, racist, toxic, anchor baby, flu season, death panels. Why do you think so many news shows are sponsored by Depends? <laughs> so tonight, ladies and gentlemen, to fight Jon Stewart's creeping reasonableness, to restore truthiness, I am announcing my rally. Nation, are you ready? Good, because I am announcing it big. fellow Americans, two score and four days from now, on October 30th, 2010, I am calling for the nation to join me on the Washington Mall for the march to keep fear alive. Government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. But you might. again, sir. And, and I answer you this time, sir. I heard about your march to keep fear alive, Stephen Colbert. Oh, are you scared, John? Reasonably concerned. I will see you in hell. No, you will see me on the Washington Mall on October 30th, and then later, if hell does exist, obviously well, we will see each other. Uh, but it's I can't say have either ideas way there's a certain anyway, ethical... Anyway, the point yes, is, what? on October 30th... Say it again! On October 30th, again. Washington, D.C. Where should we go? People, people should definitely book their hotel rooms now, or their children might turn gay. No! No! Yes! That is not the result! They should book their rooms now, because it will be more difficult to get a good room if you wait. Damn your reasonableness! It is on! Won't back down, sir! John Stewart, everybody! Gentlemen, it is on October 30th on the mall because now is not the time to take it down a notch. Now is the time for all good men to freak out for freedom.
So there you go. That is the second of two announcements from uh, Daily Show and Colbert about the big event, October 30th. Now that you've heard those two things as of this moment, you know exactly as much about the event as I do. Uh, their websites are a little scarce on details, but I do expect, as they claim, that they will be updated as time goes on with more details as they get worked out. So if you have any interest in going or following along, the uh, the official websites to go to are rallytorestoresanity.com and keepfearalive.com. I can also now confirm that I absolutely will be there. I, I don't remember if I confirmed that already. Uh, my plane ticket is purchased and uh, and the couch at a friend's house where I'll be crashing has been reserved. So I will definitely be in town. There will almost certainly be a listener meetup. As, uh, as some listeners have pointed out, this is probably going to be the best chance we have to get listeners together because sounds like kind of a lot of you will be in town. So if you have interest in meeting up, definitely stay tuned. I will be announcing it on the show and on Facebook and Twitter and uh, and all of those things. So I'll, I will get you informed on that. And then like the three of us who show up will get together and have a lovely dinner or something like that after the rally. It'll be awesome. So that's it from me today. I want to thank a couple of members before I go, though. Richard S. signed up for a membership on uh, April 9th, went ahead and signed up for a full year. And Louis G. signed up on February 23rd. Fifth, went with the monthly membership, has been sticking with the show ever since then. So huge thanks to Lewis and Richard for helping the show out enormously. Of course, all of the members and individual donors are what make this show possible in its current form. If you know, if not for you guys, this would be a hobby of mine, and you'd get four episodes a month if you were lucky, and they wouldn't be nearly as good as they are now. Um, at least I hope you guys think they're good. Everyone, 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 of course, can support the show by telling everyone you know about it. It's a word of mouth show. Absolutely no advertising for the show anywhere. So uh, so tell all your friends about it. Of course, stay connected and spread the word online by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, where, of course, you will also be getting notifications about uh, a potential listener meetup in Washington, D.C. on October 30th. For details about the show itself online, details including links to sources and music used in every episode are always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside, the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 10 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and Burning on a shiny sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who'll take you out in the open door This is not my life It's just a fond farewell to a friend It's not what I'm like